So one of the things that kind of blew my mind was finding out from a neuroscientist that hope originates in the prefrontal cortex, which is where we have language, where we have time travel or the ability to imagine the future and where we have problem solving. So hope seems to be like this kind of component of the human imagination to envision something better than what is now. Hope was part of what allowed humans to evolve and to become what we are today, to create this global civilization. If we had that capacity to hope for something different or something better, it never would have happened. We have lulled ourselves into this complacency that like life should just be easy. And if life is hard or there are challenges or the world is faced with crisis, that there's something wrong. Coming back to that fundamental recognition that, you know, human life is filled with challenges. You look at people like Tutu and the Dalai Lama and Jane, and you're like, wow, these lives are amazing because they're filled with adversity. And actually, when you coming back to that phrase from my dad, you know, if we see this as a part of our curriculum, then even the anxiety and the despair and the depression, that's part of the curriculum too. That is part of the work, recognizing that we have to grieve our losses and that there's healing in that, you know, if we grieve and are able to be there in that suffering and don't deny it. The Rich Roll Podcast. It's no mystery that humanity is currently grappling with all kinds of problems, a global pandemic, climate change that is quickly becoming more and more experiential, mass species extinction, and and so many other dire calamities that humanity can feel like it has lost its moral center. Well, Jane Goodall, the famed primatologist and climate activist, a woman and global icon who now at 87 has devoted her life to better understanding our natural world and to preserving its majesty, she has a few thoughts about all of this. Thoughts that I think might surprise you, thoughts that don't revolve around what you might suspect like cynicism or anger or pessimism, but instead are all about hope. Hope marked with action, of course, but hope really underscored by things like empathy and optimism. So how is it that she can maintain hope in the face of humanity's self-destructive trajectory. I mean, what does hope even mean? And why is it desperately incumbent upon all of us to cultivate hope as a strategy to best evolve as humans and a global community? Well, today's guest, Douglas Abrams, he wanted answers to these questions. He needed answers. So he sought out Jean Goodall. He spent countless curious hours with her culminating in this wonderful new book that he co-wrote with Jane called The Book of Hope, which is this really wonderful and intimate look into not only the nature of hope, but also into the heart and into the mind of a woman who who has really truly revolutionized how we view the world around us. This person who has spent her lifetime fighting for that world's future. Longtime listeners may recall my first conversation with Douglas. He's a former Stanford classmate of mine, a literary agent and editor and an author himself who joined the podcast several years ago to discuss the first in his global icon series of books, a book called The Book of Joy, which went on to become an instant New York Times bestseller that 
beautifully synthesizes a series of conversations between Douglas, the Dalai Lama, and Bishop Desmond Tutu on the nature of human happiness and suffering. Well, today he's back. He's done it again with Jane on the subject of hope and it's coming right up, but first. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is gonna be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fair trade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic fair trade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive. And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust 
far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now, for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. Okay, so Mr. Douglas Abrams. So this one is about hope, of course. Uh, It's about hope as an antidote to helplessness. It's about how things like empathy, patience, obstinate grace, and total devotion to doing what's right. But it's mostly about learning from Jane Goodall's example and, and why indeed it is incumbent upon all of us to shoulder this urgent but hopeful responsibility for the future of our planet and to lead by example ourselves. Doug is an impressive intellect. He's also a very charming and curious conversation partner. I always leave time spent with him better than before. And I suspect this exchange will impact you similarly. So here we go. This is me and Douglas Abrams. Sweet dude, good to see you. So great to see been, you. Uh, it's been a long time. I guess the last time we did this was 2017. We were just saying before the podcast, Seems like yesterday, but it also feels like a complete past life. A whole nother world. I know. Well, here we are. The world is spinning off its axis. <laughs> we are seeing unprecedented levels of, you know, partisanship and a breakdown in our ability mm. to communicate in a healthy way. And we're having experiential climate change and mass species extinction and the vitriol of social media inflaming all of it. And yet today, today, Douglas Abrams, we're gonna talk about hope. (laughs) We're gonna talk about empathy. We're gonna talk about patience. I mean, where to even begin to unpack this? Yeah, well, um, hope and despair are are very close bedfellows. Mm. Um, And I think a lot of people are feeling a lot of despair right now. Yeah. Um, And it's in the despair that is where we need to find the hope. That was what was so interesting. I mean, in the book, you you kind of play semi-antagonist or devil's advocate to Jane's unbridled optimism yeah. and hope yeah. as a means of like getting to the truth of what hope is. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings around the word hope and what it actually means specifically through, you know, her experience, but in general, like how do you think of it then versus now, like you going into that project and what you learned spending all that time with her Mm -hmm. about what hope truly is. Well, I think I was pretty cynical about hope when we started on the project because I'm from New York and Mm -hmm. we we don't really do hope. Uh, You know, we do fear, we do anger, we do outrage. And I think, you know, hope can really sound like, well, let's hope for the best. And it can sound really passive and it can sound really Pollyanna and, and kind of uh, unrealistic. And I think, 
in going through this process with Jane and, and learning more about hope and also going and looking at the field of hope studies and understanding what sustains hope or what you know depletes hope. I think what I got clear on was that hope isn't this kind of weak passive response. It's actually one of the most powerful responses that we can have. And that there are really kind of three things that we do in relationship to the future. We either fantasize, like I'm gonna be an NBA basketball player. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm, you are not, very tall. Though. I am tall, but no, no eye and coordination not happening. Um, or we dwell, which is what we do in New York a lot. You know, that's kind of the national mm-hmm. pastime of uh, my hometown um, or we hope. And in actually in hope, we are anticipating that there are gonna be obstacles and adversity along the way. And we're, we're not, you know, kind of ignoring those. Mm-hmm. Um, we're actually setting those goals and finding those realistic pathways to get to those goals. Yeah, there's this sense that hope is kind of a Pollyanna yeah. indulgence when in truth, it's like this active verb. And um, what really kind of triggered it for me and helping me understand it is the idea of defining it by its opposite. Like the opposite of hope isn't necessarily despair because despair is sort of a subset or a component of hope, Mm -hmm. depending upon how you look at it, but that the opposite is apathy, Mm -hmm. right? And if you wanna actually take action, hope is kind of a requisite towards getting off the dime to doing anything. Exactly, I mean, it's so easy to go from denial to despair really quickly, like just to go to the opposite, right? Whether it's about climate, whether it's about political polarization, whatever you're uh, kind of not, you know, paying attention to, and then to go, oh God, this is so awful. Mm. Um, We're never gonna solve this and go to despair. And I think hope, whether it's at a global level or it's in our own life is really about staying with the reality that life is filled with adversity and suffering and challenge. Uh, but that there, there are, I mean, it was interesting to hear from the hope science that there are these kind of four components of hope. Um, one being realistic goals, another being realistic pathways, another being a sense of agency or the ability to, uh, and confidence to make things happen. And the last is social support. And those four things are really fundamental to any kind of enduring mm-hmm. hope. And that hope has that necessity of action in it. Yeah. Am I the only one who thinks it's a little bit strange that there's something called hope studies? <laughs> like that's just bizarre, right? I know, it's amazing. It was wild. Like, was... What is that about? So, I mean, I think, you know, uh, it was really interesting because, you know, to go to the science and, and find that there's actually researchers who study what increases hope or decreases hope um, and what is the like, you know, what are the outcomes of those people who have more or less hope? And one of the things that was fascinating was people with less hope were twice as likely to die in the next three years than people with more hope. Mm. So like, or in terms of, the academic research that um, hope was more important to academic success than uh, your IQ, than your grades, than your prior success. I mean, it's like, it's almost this little kind of fundamental 
you know, secret of the human mind. Um, and that was really interesting to hear Jane call it this survival trait. Yeah. Um, that is what allows us to often make the difference between success and failure, life and death, and even potentially survival and extinction. Does the science shed any light on the uh, nurture versus nature piece regarding hope? Like are people, you know, you look at Jane and clearly she's born with a, a certain disposition towards hope and just this built-in level of resilience and almost obstinance, you know, that she's carried without her through her whole life. But I have to believe that much like resilience, this is something that can be cultivated with intentional practice. Well, actually I was really, um, delighted if that's the right word to hear that Jane was kind of a weak and sickly child uh, and didn't have that kind of buoyant, powerful optimism and ability to kind of conquer the world because I was kind of a weak and sickly child too. Um, and I think she's a really amazing example of someone who, um, and also when you talk about nurture, like who had uh, who has actually challenged, you know, like she overheard her uncle who was a doctor say, oh, you know, Jane wants to go work with wild animals mm -hmm. in Africa. She'll never be able to do it because she doesn't have the right constitution for it. Um, and Jane was like, damn that, you know, like right. I'm gonna, you know. Right, but that's the piece, right? Yeah. Like, where does that come from? Yeah. Does she, does she come out of the womb with that or is that a product of her upbringing? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we've talked about in the, uh, so Jane has these four reasons for hope that we can talk about. And one of them is the power of young people. And we talked about how do you nurture hope in, in, in young people? And I think, you know, kind of what is that nurturing of resilience that you're talking about? And I do think it's a lot of it is about encouraging kids to be able to struggle and and learn from those struggles or in allowing kids to struggle mm -hmm. um, as well as being able to help them see that struggling is purposeful on the way to their goals um, and so I think that you know it's having that, those having goals, I mean, not, you know, part of the challenge is a lot of people don't have goals or they don't have, you know, obviously the world is not equivalently, you know, fair. And a lot of people don't have the same level of pathways to realize those goals. Um, but I think that we can encourage hope uh, in young people by helping them to identify those goals that drive them forward. She had a, mm -hmm. she read Tarzan and she read, yeah. you know, and she read, you know, Dr. Doolittle. And she was like, I wanna do that. Um, that, you know, it was kind of really the spark of the imagination. Yeah, well, setting goals is important, but setting, like you said earlier, somewhat reasonable goals, right? So if you have a young person and you set them on a path towards working to something that's doable, but is gonna require some rigor and discipline and, mm -hmm. and whatnot. Um, and then they achieve that, that engenders a little self-esteem. It also creates that sense of agency. So all of those play into like the burgeoning sense of hope, right? So hope almost works like this umbrella for these other personality assets that help drive you forward and shape like a worldview. Exactly, I, I, you know, I think that it was so powerful to see that hope 
is, so one of the things that kind of blew my mind was, you know, finding out from a neuroscientist that hope originates in the frontal, the prefrontal cortex, mm -hmm. which is the kind of front of between our eyes, uh, where we have uh, language, where we have time travel or the ability to imagine the future and where we have problem solving. Mm -hmm. So that like hope seems to be like this kind of component of the human imagination to envision something better than what is now. And as one of the researchers said, we are hope fear creatures. So we are either operating out of that part of our brain, which can hope and imagine the future and work toward those goals and find those pathways, or we're in kind of the more ancient parts of our brain where we're in fear or, you know, kind of frozen uh, with a sense that there is no hope. Yeah, well, the tectonic plates of culture right now are working over time to push us towards the fear side of Absolutely. that balance, yeah. you know, and that's, that's enough to feel despair, but perhaps within that despair, mm -hmm. we can see the seedlings of hope, I don't know. It's well, hard. It's, it is hard. I mean, and obviously there are a lot of things to, to feel uh, despairing about, but as Jane said, you know, without hope, there really is no hope, you know, like, you know, it becomes <laughs> right. a self-fulfilling prophecy, yeah. right? And I would say, you know, the merchants of cynicism and doom would love us to just kind of say, well, forget it, you know, we're not gonna be able to solve our climate crisis or, you know, the, 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 our country is kind of inevitably going to be divided in the way it is. And I think that, you know, there's kind of vested interests in those positions actually. Mm -hmm. And I think that hoping for something else and actively moving forward. And I think that's the decisive piece, which is that real hope as I learned from Jane is, is really taking action. You can't, you know, it's not a passive response. And if you're doing that, then you're fundamentally challenging the status quo in some way that can be threatening to vested interests. Right, and those vested interests are also kind of harboring a perverted notion of hope. Like they know, fear travels quickly, fear is profitable. So they're hopeful about their <laughs> balance sheets. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like their hope is just directed in the wrong way. So right. you can be publicly despairing because you're building some kind of platform yeah. premised upon that, that will enrich you in a certain way, in right. a self-serving way, right. right? So how do you redirect that hope? I mean, there's a, there's a misalignment of social incentives to direct hope into you know healthier, into you know healthier trajectories for that are more communally oriented. Absolutely, and you know there's this wonderful saying that every cynic is like a you know a, a frustrated optimist. You know, like it's like you're you know, it's very easy to get pushed into that response of like, it's safer mm -hmm. to be a cynic. It's safer yeah. to to be kind of, I mean, hoping is vulnerable. Yeah, and it's, it's yeah. sort of considered more intellectual to be cynical, right? Yeah. In truth, cynicism is lazy. It, yeah. And it is less safe to be vulnerable in that way. Exactly. I mean, to want something, to, whether it's for your own life or for the world, is a vulnerable place. You might not get it, uh, but 
honestly the alternative, which is, you know, kind of like, you know, <laughs> despaired, you know, cynical kind of uh, satisfaction, you know, or yeah. something with, you know, <laughs> your lot in life, you know, in some ways it's like, wow, okay, maybe that's, uh, you know, maybe it feels more comfortable in some ways uh, or more self-protective, but ultimately the whole, I mean, this was really fascinating working with Jane, right? Because here's somebody who's studied human origins and animal nature and, you know, like we, you know, hope was part of what allowed humans to evolve and to become what we are today, to become create this global civilization. If we hadn't been, had that capacity to hope for something different or something better, it never would have happened. Right, right. So you begin the process of writing this book from what I can understand in the book, which is wonderful, by the way, I loved it. Thank you. Um, while you were putting together the book of joy, right? Because you were kind of visiting with those fellows and then catching Jane on the way. Like these, these were sort of happening somewhat in, like you were beginning the conversations with Jane while you were also writing the book of joy. Is that kind of how the timeline played out? So actually I had finished writing the book of joy. Uh, we were working on the Mission Joy movie uh, based on the Book of Joy mm -hmm. with the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. But um, I had approached Jane about uh, working together and she basically uh, gave us the green light and said, yes, come to Tanzania um, like in two weeks. And so we had to kind of scramble and develop, you know, all of the questions and the ideas for the book and to go and interview her. And then um, that was two years ago in, in August. And then while I was in Tanzania, I got the phone call from my wife that my dad had gone into the hospital mm -hmm. uh, and that it looked really serious. So I had to actually leave and come back and be with him for two months while he was actually um, dealing with uh, T-cell lymphoma and dying. Right. And, um, and then we, so, you know, through the grieving process of, you know, watching him die and, you know, what he called companioning him on his mighty journey to death. Um, and then being, and I was flying back and forth between New York where he was dying and California where my son had a traumatic brain right. injury and kind of, as you know, going back and forth between the, those uh, two realities and working on the book and talking to Jane in the midst of that. So it really was, you know, at first it was kind of theoretical and it was like hope and, uh, in, you know, as a concept. And then I think when you have, your own uh, challenges that you face, like the illness of a loved one or grief and loss of a loved one, uh, it becomes much more personal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the juxtaposition of those heavy things with this subject matter, mm. I think it, you know, it gets illustrated in the richness in, in which you, you know, deal with these themes because they're so challenging and and they're they become complex because of our own life experiences with our loved ones and with ourselves. Mm -hmm. But I think what's interesting here, was it, was it hope that drew you to Jane or was it trying to figure out how to do a book with Jane? Because you have the book of joy, mm -hmm. now we have the book of hope and this is gonna be this ongoing global icon series, which is really cool. But on some level, they're sort of subject matter vehicles to reimagine what a memoir could be because you're telling Jane's story, mm -hmm. but you're doing it through the lens of this specific idea as opposed to, you know, calling the book, 
you know, the life story of Jane Goodall or whatever, and just right. doing a linear treatment of this remarkable life. Yeah, and I, the idea is uh, for the global icons is that there are these kind of travelogue dialogues. So it's like the reader gets to come along and either with the Book of Joy have this kind of encounter with the Dalai Lama and Desmond right. Tutu. It's a very or, long series of long-winded conversations. <laughs> yeah. in, in, with, which in Jane's case involves, you know, building fires and going on long walks and drinking whiskey. Right, exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, you see, you get to, <laughs> you get, hopefully not too long-winded, you know, uh -huh. like, but to definitely uh, to get to go and kind of have the experience and mm -hmm. get to sip the whiskey um, which I actually, you know, had to train for because I had heard that she was a serious whiskey drinker. Right. <laughs> and I had to, had to practice a little, get right. my Johnny Walker handled. And, um, but so the idea of the series is, yeah, that there's these kind of really amazing icons and what, but to reveal their humanity, right? So not just kind of them as some kind of, you know, vaunted, you know, laudatory figure kind of on the global stage that we all say, wow, isn't that incredible? But to really get inside their own heart and mind and their own experiences. Mm -hmm. And that's been the most rewarding part, I think, of both the Book of Joy and the Book of Hope is people say that it gives them you know, it, they see these people and their experience, they, they relate to them in a whole different way because they're relating to their humanity. And I think that in this case, we knew we wanted to work with Jane and as somebody who has like incredible insight into human nature and into, has spent her life studying nature. And it's clear she's been this global messenger of hope and traveled the world like prior to the, you know, the pandemic 300 days a year, trying to spread hope and, and understand hope. So it became really clear that that was like, who's the best person in the world? Like if you're gonna understand joy, you're gonna go to the Dalai Lama and Desmond mm -hmm. Tutu to understand it. If you're gonna understand hope, Jane was clearly the person we needed to talk right. to. Right, you know, this is, this is something that she's talked about all the time. And it's been fascinating in the wake of the book coming out and her kind of embracing the press aspect of, of pushing it out into the world to like see her all over, like she's relentless and she's 87 <laughs> now. Like 87, 80, amazing, yeah. Like yeah. Just appearing everywhere and yeah. just totally on point, like yeah. doesn't miss a beat, so vital, like so present, so passionate. You know, this is somebody who's been doing this their whole life yeah. and started talking about these issues back in the 80s when nobody wanted to hear about it yeah. and has been banging the drum ever since, you know, as you said, like 300 cities a year until COVID. And then it just becomes a Zoom bonanza for her. Um, you would think that she would fatigue of this or that she would get frustrated. And that's a testament that's a testament to this level of hope that despite her continually putting out this message, you know, thousands of times that, you know, she still has to do it and that she's going to work until she dies. And she remains, you know, just as, as enthusiastic about, you know, her advocacy as, as she ever was. It's, it's so, so cool and inspiring, honestly, to see these, you know, 
people in their 80s and even 90s now, Arch just turned 90, you know, or we're actually working with a 101-year-old woman who founded the field of holistic medicine and integrative health, you oh, know, wow. it's like, who has a 10-year plan, um, <laughs> by the way, Gladys, her, name? her name is Gladys McGarry. Uh-huh. Um, and wow. yeah, it's amazing. And it's just like, you know, these, the people that you find who are most vital at that stage of life are these people who are, really living for something more than their own aches and pains. They've got something that they're super passionate about. They feel that they can contribute and give. And Jane has blown me away with her incredible dedication and her passion and her energy and her ability to, you know, she says she's more busier now in the pandemic than ever before. I know. Uh, And like, she's just doing, you know, (laughs) and it was amazing, you know, like, and I think the world, it's like the world is kind of caught up with Jane, as you said, she was, you know, in the eighties, she was beating the drum when Mm -hmm. nobody was really listening. And I think, you know, sadly we're becoming, you know, gratefully, but sadly the realities of uh, climate and the natural disaster that we've been creating on our earth is so much more clear to people. And so I think people have caught up, you know, and, you know, so there's a reason that Jane is now, you know, on the cover of Time Magazine. It's like, we need her. It's like the Jane moment. Mm-hmm. We need her, and but we need both the, the sounding of the alarm, but we also need the steady hand of the recognition. And I think what was powerful to hear in, in the book, you know, in writing the book with her was this sense of, this kind of grounded sense of our ability to handle great challenges like mm-hmm. like in World War II, for example. And that, you know, we, we kind of lulled ourselves into this complacency that like life should just be easy. And like, if life is hard or there are challenges or the world is faced with crisis, that there's something wrong as opposed to like, that's how human life this is. This is the way that it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's that story of her coming up against some fatigue with the relentlessness of the interviews and the speaking. Mm-hmm. And there's that matchbook box thing that she created when she was a little girl around uh-huh. her confirmation. Uh-huh. And in, in each little drawer, there's a, a tiny little scroll where she had inscribed something from the Bible or something like that. And yeah. she pulls it out and it, it was some you know, some passage about like, you know, you, you, you cannot, you know, you have to continue to sow the field or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And just, okay, off you go. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that sense of you, you know, like I, which her favorite quote is actually one from the Bible, which is like, you know, uh, as your days, so shall, you, shall your strength be or something mm-hmm. like that, which is just like, you're given just enough to sustain you through the challenges that you face. Yeah. And there's so much to be gleaned from understanding that her ability to show up and be that vital is so rooted to her passion and her deep sense of purpose, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you can anchor yourself in something that you care about deeply and channel it in a way that is in service to others. Like it gets her up out of bed every morning. It keeps her invigorated about life and, you know, cognitively, if nothing else, like it's just remarkable. Right. So I I think that that sense of purpose is huge. I was also thinking about how to come back to the conversation about nurturing, like, you know, it's amazing. Like it was kind of mind blowing that her mother 
picked up and went with her into mm -hmm. the African forest, into Gombe to do the research because they wouldn't let a white right, woman- Right, she needed a chaperone. She needed a chaperone. They wouldn't let a white woman kind of go into the forest at, at, back then. And, you know, like that's kind of incredible, mm -hmm. you know, and I think one of the things that most interesting things I learned about hope is that as one researcher described it, it's a social gift. You know, it's something we give to each other. We encourage and support each other's sense of hope. And obviously our parents do that immensely for us as children, um, but we do that for one another. Uh, when we're facing those obstacles, that social support and that sense of hope. Um, and that, that was also really interesting that hope and hopelessness are contagious. You know, that mm -hmm. this sense of like, we think we're all these separate kind of minds and separate, you know, people and but then our sense of hopefulness or despair about the future deeply impacts everybody else's. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's a really powerful idea. I can't help but think that, you know, you get into this section in, later in the book about spirituality and faith. And I'm interested in how faith differs from hope technically, mm -hmm. but there's this sense that I can't escape of like predestination with her. I mean, mm. it tracks all the way back to, you know, the beech tree and her climbing the tree and just this deep rooted connection to the natural world that's almost, you know, preternatural for mm -hmm. a young person to have that she remains true to her entire life. Like her interests never wavered. And on some level, like, Obviously, when you look in the rearview mirror, it's 2020, but it right. all adds up perfectly. It's like, of course, this is the life that this person <laughs> lived, you know? And along the way, there were these amazing kind of synchronicities and coincidences. And, you know, the fact that she even ended up, you know, being doing secretarial work for Leakey and like what, what you know, kind of came after that, like you couldn't script that. Like if you put that in a narrative movie, it just would be too unbelievable, <laughs> you know? Well, you know, it's, it's funny, like I totally get that. And I think, you know, from one vantage point, that's totally true. And from the other vantage point, it's this, you know, like, it's exactly what you said about hindsight being 2020. It's like, you know, we all live these lives and from day to day, we don't understand where they're going or what the meaning of our life is. Um, and then in retrospect, we're like, oh yeah, like I get it. Like I, that led me to this, to that. You know, my dad had this wonderful expression when he was dying. He said, you know, um, he said, it, it's all part of my curriculum. Right. And it's such an amazing perspective. It's such an amazing perspective, right? Because whether you believe it's predestined or you believe in God or you don't believe in God or you believe that there's purpose in life or not, you can make it meaningful in your own life by seeing it as part of your own curriculum. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, Jane, you know, Jane definitely took a lot of botany and biology, you know, kind of in her early, like, yeah. like if you want to kind of say what her curriculum was. You know, like she she definitely fell in love with the natural world, and but lots of people read Tarzan, lots of people read Doctor Doolittle, and you know what I think made her you know an amazing example of this kind of active hope is that then she said, "I'm not going to be, st I'm going to keep." pushing myself closer mm -hmm. to my goals. I'm gonna find those pathways, right? I mean, so yes, is it amazing and miraculous? And could we have scripted it in a Hollywood movie that, you know, she would go work with Louis Leakey who would then be, you know, wanting to understand our, you know, our ape-like ancestors and send her into the jungle. But, you know, she had to, 
get her way to that secretarial training. She, you know, she had to find her way to his office. She had to impress him on the digs that she, you know, and how she dealt with the lion and the rhinoceros. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like she had to convince him that she was the one for the job. And right. I think we're in some way, we're all, you know, in our own curriculum trying to prove, you know, like to ourselves that we're, we're up for the task. Yeah. Of course, the story of her being in Gombe and spending all the time with the chimps and it all being documented is 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 so well told, but I didn't know a lot of the details of her life story. And I truly did not appreciate just the level of resistance that she faced and, and the kind of state of science at the time, yeah. this idea that, you know, perhaps we were not uh, evolved from apes and these animals did not have an interior emotional life and there was yeah. nothing to be learned or gleaned by observing them and her you know back to that kind of obstinance or this you know very directed sense of purpose to put herself in that position and then have the patience to literally be there like 10 years yeah. in order to you know take what she was observing and then with leaky's help contextualize it, you know, in a vernacular that that it could be even received by the scientific community. I mean, the barriers and the obstacles and the resistance was unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, the, to to remember first of all that she and went And being a woman. Right. Like, so on top like, of exactly. It. Like yeah. that she was a woman at a time when as she says, you know, men weren't even going into the forest yeah. to study animals, you know. Um she didn't even have an undergraduate degree. Right, and let alone a PhD, which she later got, but right. she didn't, you know, she didn't even have an undergraduate degree. She literally had a secretarial training course, you know, and she's going into the jungle and, you know, having to- With her mom. With her, with her moms as a chaperone, <laughs> you know, and God bless moms. After and, this proper upbringing, right, you know, in England, where it was all about finding, you know, a rich guy to marry and debutantes and all that kind of stuff. Right, exactly. You know, it definitely was, you know, like it was the path less taken. And, you know, but that determination that she was gonna follow, she had these goals, she was gonna follow them. She was gonna find out pathways, you know, I mean, I, I, the story that she tells about how the guy who drove them from, uh, from Kenya to uh, Gombe said he'd never thought he'd see them again alive, right. you know, and she just really uh, just kind of, you know, she was very lucky, obviously, you know, there were a lot of dangers that she was facing that, you know, made her life really dramatic and more dramatic than most of ours. But, you know, to come back to the point of what you were saying about like what she did for us in terms of changing our understanding of humanity, right? There's, I mean, this whole relationship to the natural world that obviously we've lost so much of that we are animals and that we, can't survive without the ecosystem and without nature and that we are nature. Um, you know, she was one of the, the first people to help uh, bridge that gap and help us see that, yeah, animals have personalities, have emotions, um, that this is a continuum of intelligence. And, you know, I asked her, you know, do animals have hope? Um, and she said, well, yeah. you know, if you think about it, you know, your dog waiting at the dog, the door with his tongue hanging out, kind of waiting for you to come home, that, that's a version of hope. Mm -hmm. 
what we've done with our consciousness and the evolution of our consciousness is be able to take that hope and go into the distant future and go to Mars and come, you know, solve problems far into mm-hmm. the distance. Uh, but it is all on a continuum. And I think that like, it's almost like she regrafted us back into the natural world and helping us to understand our place. And I think, one of the key things if we're gonna solve so many of the problems that we face, but most especially our environmental crisis is that ability to recognize our relationship with the whole and with the natural world. And that, as she says, if we keep pulling threads from the tapestry of life, it, it will um, disintegrate mm-hmm. and we will lose what sustains us and supports us. Yeah, that's so well put. Um, the idea that we take for granted this continuum now She's like the missing link. Like she's the the piece that bridges that gap. Yeah, I, I, and she and without her work, you know, how much longer would it have been before we started to piece that together for ourselves? It's incredible. It is amazing. It's totally you know epic, and um, you know to have a life where you do that, just pioneering scientific work uh, and into, you know, and then that changes the zeitgeist, you know, as, uh, as Leakey said, you know, now we have to, re- you know, recognizing that animals use tools, which was one of her discoveries when at the time we were called, you know, the tool making um, ape, you know, that was like, only humans use tools, you know, that ability to shift how we think of ourselves. And I think what she's doing now, I mean, one of the interesting things about uh, the way we talk about the book of hope is it's like her first book about humans, you know, like we've heard right. that the chimpanzee story and her research story, but this now it's like, okay, what does all that research tell us about us and about our ability to survive and thrive individually and collectively? That's what I was really into it for, you know, like, and that's what I wanted to know. And I think that that ability to recognize that we are this, um, like her desire now to really help us at this moment of crisis to face the despair and the challenges that we've faced, the mess that we've made um, in my mind is like, you know, to go from scientist to activist in that way is so inspiring. Yeah, yeah, on that interconnected, I mean, her, her, her climate activism was initially triggered when she started to see encroachments on the chimp and ape habitats, right? So this yeah. is back in like, you know, late seventies, early eighties. Um, and that's when she kind of shifts her focus away from being this observational scientist into yeah. being more of an activist and an advocate. Mm-hmm. Um, but what she also realized very early that is now sort of more widely understood is that redressing these habitat issues or kind of pushing forward her climate measures or her, her you know, biodiversity protectionist measures was gonna require empowering communities. Like you have totally. to go to the people, right? Is right. You have to make these people activated. And to do that, you have to sort of empower them to figure out how to, how to make a living and be sustainable with it so that the incentives are aligned for them to be invested in it. Totally. If you make a mother choose between feeding her, her family and chopping down a tree or destroying the environment, Right. The, the, the forest is gonna you know, lose every time, right? It's only when we create pathways for people to be able to recognize that, that those children depend upon mm-hmm. that 
thriving ecosystem and that folks who are impoverished in throughout the world have another way of sustaining themselves rather than destroying the environment. Here in our part of the world, you know, it's a very different issue, right? It's, you know, it's not typically about, you know, whether we can feed our kids in the same way. Um, it's often about overconsumption and the fact that we're using too much of the world's resources. Yeah. I mean, she was doing like micro lending way back, right? Before <laughs> yeah, yeah. it became like a tech yeah, thing, you right, know? Right. Like she understood that. Like she's so far ahead of the curve in so many ways. Do you know this? Have you heard of this guy, uh, Damien Mander? He's I haven't, like no. He was a Australian special forces soldier who, you know, kind of went off the rails and reinvented himself in Africa by becoming in uh, like, you know, being very active in the anti-poaching community. Oh, cool. And he's put together this all female. Oh yeah. Um, oh yes, maybe I have. Brigade yes. called Akashinga, mm -hmm. where he's empowered these women yeah. in, a, in a similar way where, you know, they feel like he so realized that the women were the answer. To right, this is this in Zimbabwe or yes. Mozambique yeah, or something? Yeah, 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 one of those, I yes. can't remember. He's yeah. been on the podcast before, but it's an extraordinary story. But it the principles, the reason I bring it up is that the underlying principles are the same, like empowering these women, understanding that the, 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 the manner in which these women are embedded in their communities and the way that they communicate will create the level of cooperation to combat this in a way that um, like a battalion of men with M16s are not gonna be capable of doing. Right. And it's really cool and they're having like amazing results. It is, it's totally amazing. And you know, I think I wrote a novel a while back called Eye of the Whale and I went and worked with uh, biologists and marine biologists and r heard from them that basically the, the most powerful instinct in mammals, all mammals, including humans, is this maternal instinct and this parental instinct that we have. And that is ultimately what, you know, as we're talking about, it's gonna destroy us because we're gonna think that we have to support our kids at the expense of the environment mm -hmm. or actually what it can do is save us because we can realize that, you know, we can do it for our, our children. And I do think that, you know, we humans tend to do the right thing at the last possible moment. Um, so it's, yeah, not, you know, it's I like, know. we'll try we're everything. Race against time here. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, but that, you know, I mean, I think, you know, what Jane says about us, you know, kind of stealing from our children, uh, stealing the earth from our children is so powerful. And, you know, really, like, I think all of us who are parents or, you know, who love kids, uh, want our kids and grandkids to thrive. And there's no thriving on planet earth without a thriving planet. Yeah, 100%. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care 
tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities, of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, waking up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. So in the book, there are these four kind of pillars, these four things that give us hope. We have human intellect, the resilience of nature, the power of young people, and then the indomitable human spirit, right? Yeah. And this is how Jane thinks about these things. How does that measure up against like what the hope scientists are determining? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I mean, we could take them one at a time. Yeah. Um, I also was thinking back to your comment about hope and faith and hope and optimism, actually. Mm -hmm. I think those distinctions are really useful as well. So we can come back to those. Um, but I think, you know, the amazing human intellect 
you know, like what Jane will make this distinction is like the intellect is that part we were talking about of our brain that allows us to do problem solving and have language and time travel and, you know, be able to imagine the future imagination. And, but it's, you know, it's not necessarily the same as intelligence, right? Like if we were intelligent, we wouldn't be destroying our planet, mm -hmm. right? You know, like that's <laughs> yeah. not so smart. Um, and so she makes this great distinction between intellect and intelligence, but that cleverness that we do have, that is is what allows us to send, you know, to go to the moon and send rovers to Mars and come up with carbon sequestration strategies for dealing with climate change and just a changing our way of life in such a way that we can sustain ourselves. But I asked her, you know, I think you said I was kind of the devil's advocate or kind of the, you know, a little bit of, you know, challenging her on some of her views. And one of the things I said to her was like, are we 41%, 51% good or 51% evil? Like, how can you say the amazing human intellect is gonna, you know, is one of your reasons for hope when it's caused such a, you know, all this mess and this disaster. And she said, you know, well, she thinks we're actually split down the middle 50-50 and that what determines which way we go is our environment, which actually like there's this kind of moment where your whole world just gets turned upside down and you see life totally differently. And that was one of those moments because mm -hmm. suddenly all the things that we think of as evil, like aggression or selfishness and greed, suddenly I could see that those were, as she said, things that helped us evolve, helped us survive. And they were useful and they played their, they, they, they played and served their purpose. Um, but now we have to create an environment and a culture, which is kind of back to what we were talking about at the beginning, the challenge that we're facing culturally that encourages those better angels of our nature mm -hmm. to succeed and, 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 and win. Because if we don't, then we go to the way of the dodo bird. Yeah. I mean, every man is right from his own perspective. And if you yeah. were to walk, you know, not just a mile in that, you know, seemingly quote unquote evil person's shoes, but yeah. you followed them around from childhood, you would understand and develop empathy for why they behave the way that they do. Yeah, I was watching this amazing documentary about, you know, narcos and drug smugglers on the border. And, you know, one of the guys was saying to the, to the filmmaker, you know, if I could do your job, I would do your job. You know, mm -hmm. this is the only job I, got, I can get. You know, I was yeah. like, I was like, uh, you know, so it is a really a reminder. You know, I, I had a, a writing teacher who once said, no villain is a villain in their own mind. Sure, yeah. You know, you can't literally hit the old lady over the head and take her purse if you don't think at that moment, you're doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, you know, what this says in terms of, the amazing human intellect, as Jane said, is that, you know, we do have this incredible cleverness, but we actually have to take it and use it intelligently. We have to use it with wisdom. And one of the things she talked about is like wisdom is the ability to think of the whole. Wisdom is the ability to think of the long-term consequences of what we're doing. Uh, wisdom is returning to the natural intelligence of, of, of nature. I mean, we work with another amazing a researcher named Suzanne Samard, who did a book called Finding the Mother Tree. And she was the woman who discovered mm -hmm. the intelligence and communication of 
trees mm -hmm. and how they communicate with each other. And there is this amazing intelligence in all of nature. Um, and so some of it is getting our clever little monkey mind back in touch with this deeper sense of intelligence and wisdom that has sustained species throughout, you know, history. Right, she has this quote, my hope for the future is that we learn wisdom again. Yeah. Right, and that again, at least the way I interpret it is to return to this state of man where we are immersed, we appreciate that we are part of nature, that we're immersed in this oneness and that everything truly is interconnected, which is deeply embedded in Jane's DNA because she's lived it her entire life. But yeah. we live in such separation from you know, our natural habitats that we lose sight of that and we compartmentalize and we apply the scientific method and we look at things, you know, on a variable by variable basis. But in truth, and I love the part in the book about the trees and the fungi and the underground networks and understanding that every single thing is interdependent on everything else. And if we wanna live harmoniously and synchronously on this earth, we're not gonna be able to do it until we can truly appreciate that. Absolutely. And, you know, we were just kind of finding our way back to that. I mean, I think we've kind of thought that nature was all about, you know, competition, red and tooth and claw, and it's all about, you know, right, might is right and survival of the fittest. And actually what we're finding, the newer science is it's actually survival of the, of the kindest. It's mm. like we evolved actually, as, and part of what's allowed humans to survive and thrive is this amazing social capacity, this being a social species. This is part of what language, you know, made possible. Um, and so it's like seeing, it's not that there isn't competition and we're not competing with each other, but it's like this fascinating thing where we're competing to cooperate and we're cooperating to compete. It's like this, they're, they're totally interdependent. Right, so if you take like a forest, for example, this idea that perhaps there's a greater intelligence like a hive mind that exists mm -hmm. amongst the you know billions of living things within that forest that on some rudimentary level understand that their survival is dependent upon the survival of the whole so it's not about one tree competing with another tree for sunlight or water or right. etc but an understanding that all these trees need to thrive and this network has to be healthy and if we can maintain that and sustain that, then that's good for everybody. It's kind of amazing that, that we had to, yeah, it's totally. I, it, <laughs> and it works. It works. Without I, us being involved in it. Right, exactly. All. It has but, that like inherent intelligence. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the fascinating experience, experiments that Suzanne Samard did was she actually found that trees exchange carbon with one another. Uh, so, in other words, their kind of version of food based on how much they're shading each other. Mm -hmm. So, like, like they know one needs a little bit more than the right, other. Right, exactly. Okay, I'm shading you, but I'm going to give you a little food to, you know, right. you know, tide you over there. You know, <laughs> uh, so it's this incredible interdependence and mutuality that is that we've lost sight of, and I think, you know, kind of this way in which like this amazing human intellect has been mm -hmm. a little too clever for our own good. And we've separated ourselves out from the rest of the natural world and from even from one another and recognizing that profound interdependence. Yeah, well, part of the problem with the human intellect is the hubris that comes with it. Yeah. That we can out engineer this thing and, you know, problem solve and figure our, figure our way through it 
without that level of humility and appreciation. Right, and I think there's a kind of hyper individualism that has, that we have, especially in the, you know, mm-hmm. this kind of modern Western culture of that we've lost track of that interdependence and that connection. And, you know, we're not gonna make it if, you know, it's like, it's like saying like, okay, um, you know, it's, we're being ta- taught this lesson in the most profound way. There's one climate. You know, mm-hmm. if we pollute or somebody else pollutes, it doesn't really matter because we're all breathing the same air. We're all impacted by the same climate. But humans are not very well designed to appreciate that. Uh, it's it's amazing know. how, you know, like I think, you know, it's interesting. I mean, we uh, when we were hunter gatherers, I think, you know, there, there's this really, you know, we had much more of that perspective, but, you know, we did, you know, we do have this, uh, you know, kind of deep competition and kind of, uh, you know, potentially, you know, Jane also observed the apes being genocidal and mm-hmm. be having a war. That was really one of the things that she discovered. So we got, you know, we're, there, we're, there are parts it's of us that us. Are, are not going away, you know, that it's like, we're, you know, like I think that any real sustained hope has to be based on reality. So like to fantasize that somehow we're going to become a different you know, species, or we're gonna like get rid of our selfishness or our greed, you know, that's, you know, fantasy. That's fantasizing about the future. That's not hoping about the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, The hope comes from taking what we are and the reality of what we are and finding out how do we encourage what's best in us. Yeah. When COVID began and everybody stopped and no one was driving and everyone was at home, the air seemed to clear pretty quickly. <laughs> it's like, you know, to this second point of the resilience of nature, like yeah. if we just get out of the way, it self-corrects pretty rapidly. And my sense is that there's a little bit of despair with Jane that we couldn't leverage this COVID moment to make more substantial changes in the way that we live, but it is what it is. But there are these ex- amazing examples in the book of you know nature's ability to bounce back if we yeah. just make some simple changes, if we can deploy that human intellect in an appropriate way. And I love the story of the cement, the guy who owned the cement plant. Yeah. And then, you know, I don't know, atoning for that or whatever, decides he's gonna restore it to nature. Yeah. And it becomes this unbelievable forest preserve. And yeah. not that long. Didn't yeah. take that long. Well, that was really hopeful to hear that, you know, like ecosystems typically bounce back in 10 to 50 years. Um, and that like, if they're marine environments, it's, it's more like 10. If they're depending on the, the kind of ecosystem it is, it can be on the outside 50 years. And, you know, I was pushing her, I was like, you know, how can this environment, you know, like, isn't there a point where like nature basically breaks and we just destroy it all. Um, and, and she was saying, you know, like basically, you know, nature is gonna be here. The question is whether we will. And, you know, we, you know, like 99.9% of all species have gone extinct throughout history. So like for us, you know, there is a real chance that we could go extinct. And the question is, are we going to, we can't evolve physically anymore. Um, we, we just don't, we're not gonna do that in any time scale that is fast enough. So can we evolve culturally fast enough so that, that we can do what is necessary in order to stick around and earn our place? I mean, there's this fascinating woman I spoke to named Janine Benius who does this work on biomimicry. And she said, you know, the, the difference between being an invasive species 
and a welcome species, like a, a naturalized species in any ecosystem, is an invasive species takes more than they give. A welcome species gives more to the ecosystem than they take. And so we've been taking, you know, we've been taken and taken and taken and been this invasive species. So now the the work is can we actually reimagine our culture and our society and our uh, way of life so that actually gives more than we take. And having just been at uh, the TED Climate Countdown with one of our other authors, Christiana Figueres, who did the Paris Climate Treaty, it was so inspiring to see how we are coming up with so many of these technological solutions, but also just recognizing this that we don't have to be this kind of extractive uh, society. Mm -hmm. We can actually give back to the environment um, and create technologies and ways of living that actually give as much as we take. And, uh, you know, fundamentally dealing with the climate crisis we're in is not waiting around for some technological miracle to happen. It's really, I mean, they were quantifying it as the, the, the trillions of dollars we need to be investing over the next 10 years to transform our infrastructure and our way of life. And we, we know what the technologies are. We just need the political will to do mm. it. Yeah, the political will is problematic. Though, <laughs> you know? Well, then we can get hopeless about yeah. know, our, well, our society. Yeah, because yeah. You know, we need it on both ends. And you know, Jane talks about how you know, we've been told to think globally and act locally and how that actually leads to depression because when you think globally, it's too overwhelming for you to do anything. Yeah. So what's the alternative? Well, we can like not use plastic straws. And I guess there's some level of agency that we feel with that. We can adopt a plant-based diet, we can recycle, we can compost, we can, you know, gauge our, our food weight. There, there are plenty of things we can, you know, get renewable energy. So all these things that there are certain consumer things that we can do yeah. and that, you know, basically allows us to feel more emotionally invested and develops that sense of agency. Like at least we're taking the, the small actions that we can every single day. But on some level, there is a sense like, yeah, that's not gonna cut it. Like I, we need it on the other end too. We need it from the highest levels down. And, you know, I'm glad to hear that you came out of the TED conference, you know, somewhat inspired. And here we are on the cusp of COP26. Like there's a lot of speculation about whether we can get our shit together and, and deploy the level of political and financial resources that are gonna be required to tackle this in a really meaningful way. You know, the future was never won without a battle. And I think we are in a battle for the soul and future of humanity. And it's not gonna be easy, you know, and whether we succeed at COP or, you know, like there were a lot of cops before Paris that, you know, mm -hmm. Christiana was the first to get the, the treaty that, you know, that she got was quite miraculous right. to get 190 countries. But what's amazing about, you know, and it's not happening fast enough. It's, you know, there are all sorts of, uh, you know, parties that are not pulling their weight ourselves included. Um, and yet, like at that conference, I was talking with you know somebody who represents the top ten oil and gas companies, and who are obviously some of the villains in this story of destruction of our planet, and they are 
committed to net zero by 2050. Mm -hmm. They've basically recognized the writing on the wall that there is, you know, no, you know, like they have to become renewable energy companies. I mean, the fact that solar and wind uh, have, you know, prices have declined as dramatically as they have that a third of all energy right now is already renewable. I mean, this, these are things that, you know, like, you know, we, you could have been, we could have been on this program a couple of years ago and say, oh, it's never gonna happen, yeah. right? Um, and so I think, you know, what, it was really interesting to, Rec, you know, to hear Jane's comment of having lived through World War II and having lived through, you know, democracy on the, you know, precipice of extinction in the face of fascism, you know, and, you know, in the face of, you know, Nazi Germany, you know, and, and the bombings and like, you know, history does not happen, you know, in a textbook. It happens because individuals make decisions that change that history. Mm -hmm. And it's so easy to think about, you know, history, you know, and society as being these big, poly, you know, political bodies or these big corporations and who are we? But as you said, you know, our consumer choices drive a lot of those um, corporations to change. We, you know, fortunately in democratic societies, we are the ones who do elect our political, you know, uh, leaders and determine what policies we are going to, we are going to follow. Yeah. So a lot of it, I think is, you know, I think what Jane would say is, is I think, think you're right. And what Jane would say is there are, it's not about paper or plastic. It's not about, you know, like, like that decision is gonna change the course of history, but it is about the con overall carbon choices that we each make in our own lives and, it is also about our political will. I mean, look at the, a schoolgirl, you know, in Sweden named Greta Thunberg, mm -hmm. who was able to unleash an entire youth movement because she was willing to miss school and sit in right. front of the parliament, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's what, you know, you could have said, who is she? To, but look at the impact that she's had. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It's, I thought a lot about the juxtaposition of Jane and Greta because they're sort of, you know, analogs to each other. Like on some level, you could make the argument that, that you know, Greta is, you know, the, the sort of successor to, you know, a certain strain of advocacy that, that Jane helped initiate. And yet they're very different. Like generationally, yeah. they have very different sensibilities in how they advocate. And you asked Jane point blank, like, what do you think of Greta, right? Yeah. And she was very politic in her answer. Yeah. You know, I suspect that her, you know, her position is like, that works for Greta, like Jane is much more empathetic. She's much more gentle. She's very direct and clear in her messaging, but she doesn't come, she doesn't, you know, come at it as hard as Greta does. You know, and, it, and you need yeah. every, you need both, you exactly. need all of it. You know, it's all great. But right. it's interesting I, how they differ. Yeah, it is really interesting. I I, I loved what it, when 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 I asked her, you know, like, what do you say to somebody like Greta who says, "Don't give us your hope, give us your your you know your fear," like, you know, realize that your house is on fire and act like your house is on fire, mm -hmm. right? And you know, Jane's response that you know we need you know we need fear, anger, and hope. We need all of them. You know, you you know, we, it's not right. fear alone. It's not anger alone. It's not hope alone. You know, we need all of these uh, responses to the crises that we're we're facing. And yeah. I, you know, I do think you know to to your your point about there being really different. I think that 
Jane is uh, more, you know, her, she, I mean, one of the amazing things that Jane did was to start get animal testing, you know, to be outlawed on, on chimpanzees, you know, where we were doing all these experiments on animals and she's been really active in animal rights issues and was a huge activist. Uh, her experience was that she got a lot of those changes by changing, telling stories and changing the hearts and minds mm-hmm. of the people who are making those decisions. And I think that that's a really powerful and important way to do it. I also think that there's a role, I mean, personally, I think there's a role for uh, demonstration and civil disobedience and a kind of harder edged, angrier activism that, um, and I think young people recognize that it's their future that's at stake and that we need to change. Yeah, it's a tension between that absolutism, like Greta would probably say like, well, Jane's been talking about this since the eighties. Like, I don't want to have to talk about it for 50 years before (laughs) something changes, you know, sort of the impetuousness of youth um, versus the kind of coalition building. Like I think storytelling really is the best way to win hearts and minds, but there's a patience required with that as well. So, and there's there's this idea of, of being in partnership or cooperation with some of the bad actors to help them, you know, develop a greater awareness of what's actually going on and kind of shift the incentives to nudge them into the right direction. But those two things working in concert with each other, you know, sometimes in opposition, but ultimately with the same goal in mind, I yeah. think are, you know, become powerful, like dual drivers. Absolutely. I think you need it all. And you need, you need both or all of the options. You know, you mm-hmm. need to be driving internal change and you need to be driving external change. I mean, one of the things, the stories that we tell in the book was from Christiana of the kind of CEO of Shell, who was at this TED climate meeting, basically saying that his daughter had come to him and said, are you, know, are you destroying the planet? Because that's what I'm, I'm hearing in school that you're, you know, ruining the planet and shell oil. And, you know, his change of heart and mind, you know, you can ask whether it's greenwashing or how sincere it is or how real it is, but his desire as a father to, as he says, get this done for you and your generation, you know, there's there's that kind of emotional shift and change. But we also need the demonstrations and the political will to, you know, be taxing carbon in a way that makes it makes sense financially and as a business and absolutely, you know, <laughs> legally necessary to make the shifts because we can't depend on everybody's hearts and yeah. minds changing in time. Are you going to COP26? Now that you have this, you have a, a client, an author who's like, immersed in that? Yeah, so I, you know, I decided that I wasn't, you know, this is more of a policy forum and, you know, the TED climate meeting was more of a um, kind of culture and thought leadership forum that that was the place I could be most useful. Um, so I'm, there's still a possibility that I may go, but it's, um, I think, again, to want to use the carbon to get there for yeah. only if I'm needed and useful. Right, right. Um, Back to the Greta thing. I mean, the other the other pillar here is the power of young people, right? Yeah. And and this is another thing that like Jean was way ahead of the curve on. She starts this roots and shoots thing that is empowering all these young people and engendering that level of hope by connecting them with natural environments and giving them, you know, tools and resources to part to actually like in a very tactile way, like participate in creating the change. 
Yeah, I mean, it's often called the Jane generation. You know, she's like in 68 countries, she's mm-hmm. been having these programs which have been helping activate and get kids uh, into activism and into kind of caring about their environments and their communities. Um, so I think it's a, a powerful example of, you know, the ways in which you can intervene in the culture and actually change hearts and minds at a very young age. You know, I asked her, you know, I was pretty skeptical because mm-hmm. I was like, you know, how can you say the power of young people is gonna save us uh, or is gonna, you know, is, is this reason for hope where, you know, we haven't been able to get, other previous generations haven't been able to get it done. Um, and, you know, what's to say that they're gonna be different? And she said, well, I think in terms of the environment in particular, but I think in terms of social awareness, more generally, they are aware. And I mean, I think this is one of the amazing things about our speeches. We didn't, you know, we talked about this a little, but we have this kind of prolonged childhood in which we are, you know, we're, we're create this whole kind of nurturance that transforms and educates and changes the next generation. So, you know, we're a lot of species, obviously they're, basically pre-programmed, they come out, they, you know, every generation does the same thing as the last generation. We have this capacity, we call it education, we call it parenthood, to actually change and transform the next generation, to, to evolve our species in this really amazing way from generation to generation. And if you think about it, I mean, this is, you know, also back to the work with the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, because we talked a lot about hope and despair and, you know, the state of the world. And, you know, if you look at the news, as they said, all you see on this planet is, you know, the doom and gloom, but it's news because it's actually, you know, unusual. It's Mm -hmm. not the vast majority of what's happening on this planet. And so if you look at the reality of, you know, most of human life, there's an enormous amount of compassion, kindness and caring that takes place, you know, every day that we're doing. And if you think about the other thing they said, if you take this long view and you see like, what was our society like a hundred years ago? You know, like, like women couldn't vote, you know, like, you know, just over a century yeah, ago. I mean, that you was know, like, like five seconds ago. Yeah, five seconds ago, right? I mean, like the transformation, you know, we used to think, you know, we thought that slavery was like, you know, morally justifiable, you know, like, you know, just, you know, less than 200 years ago, right? So, I mean, you, there's, I mean, we have been evolving our culture in these phenomenal and dramatic ways. Um, and it's so easy to forget that and to get caught up with, you know, the quarterly cycle or the, you know, political cycle and to say, oh God, we're, you know, we're doomed. But if you think about it as this much larger uh, evolution and process of transformation, then it's really a question. It's not like whether we're gonna deal with the crises because we are gonna have to, or we're gonna go extinct. Um, it's really a question of how skillfully we do that, mm-hmm. how fast we do that, how much human suffer and, and suffering of humans and the rest of the natural world we're going to need in order to get where we need to go. Yeah. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. 
From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I don't know that we've forgotten how much we have progressed as much as we're literally brainwashed by dint of our media landscape yeah. into believing that everything is terrible all the time. And this yeah. is something that like Steven Pinker talks about all the time. <laughs> it's sure. like, we're actually way better off than you know, most of us yeah. recognize. And if you really look at you know, just a few years ago, decades ago, hundreds of years ago, I mean, it's just, it's statistically by every metric, like we're in a much better place. Yeah. And it's almost as if we need, you know, a 24 hour um, network that is just sharing the uplifting stories or telling the tale of like how we're progressing in yeah. meaningful, positive ways that could be, you know, a, a germinator of, of that kind of hope, but there's nothing like that. And perhaps there's no economic, you know, a viable economic model to create something like that, but imagine the impact of something like that. And, you know, we all celebrate lives like Jane and stories that make us feel uplifted. And yet when push comes to shove, we, you know, click the channel and we indulge ourselves in whatever disasters are happening around the world, like every single day or scrolling through our Twitter feed. Yeah, I, I think you know there's something that the the neuroscientists call the negative bias of the brain, which is you know we evolved to look for the problem. We look, for, we evolved to look for what's going to kill us, and so you know to look for the threat, the danger, and so it's not surprising that you know we're kind of glued to the car wreck you know mm-hmm. and to disaster see the, the, the disaster yeah. born you know and you know we that is really fascinating to the human imagination and the human mind and that's not again that's not going away either and i think that 
the, you know, and yes, I think the media has become this kind of like, if you think about, you know, pre, you know, media culture, you know, like, like, you know, a hundred years ago, um, you know, people were not saturated with uh, this, you know, kind of the horrible things that are happening everywhere in the world, right? It was kind of like, you know, in your neighborhood, was shit going down or not, you know, mm-hmm. is there bad, you know, like, you know, you just didn't have that same kind of, global perspective um, and you weren't being, you know, as you said, you know, saturated by disaster porn or, or misery porn um, or outrage. Um, and I think this is an example of, you know, do our algorithms encourage outrage or do they encourage the facts and, you know, and a more balanced view of life? Well, I think we've answered that question. We, we well, yeah. we, certainly the algorithms as yeah. they are programmed now do, right? Uh, kind of enhance the outrage and, and the despair and the depression. And, you know, I mean, it's interesting, we work with a researcher who studies the impact of social media on people's happiness and well being. And they found that- DJ? Uh, actually, well, we work with BJ. Oh, BJ yes, yeah. this is actually he, he, he's, he's like a, patient zero for that. Right, like he's, exactly. He taught the class that you know spawned all these technologists right. that went so, out and created algorithms. Well, they, yes, exactly. That's the problem with technology yeah. and 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 science. You can use it for good or you can use it for evil. Uh, but um, no, this is actually Ethan Cross, and one of the things mm. he discovered was that when people passively consume social media, they're just like scrolling through their feed. Yeah, they're more miserable and unhappy um, for a whole variety of reasons that we don't need to go into, but um, but if they're more engaged in it and using it for that social support, for that hope contagion, for that, you know, uh, that hope is a social gift and getting support and giving support, that's where it can be actually really useful. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, you know, one of the ways that I try to communicate to my kids around this stuff is to think of it in terms of consumption versus creation. Like, are you Mm. using this to create something? Yeah. Are you using it to have healthy communication or are you just mindlessly consuming it? Yeah. And if you're using it for creative purposes, then it becomes an incredibly powerful and, and often uplifting tool. Right. I mean, is it, you know, in some ways, one really fascinating way to think of social media is we've just basically wired up all of our brains together into a global mind. And now the question is, you know, like, so the human mind is, you know, there's the amazing human intellect, but there are all sorts of other little challenges of the human mind too. Little dark corners. You know, like there's (laughs) like, we ruminate a lot, we dwell, we're, you know, we can be really cruel, you know, like all sorts of things that we can do uh, with our mind. And so the question is, you know, now we've, for the first time we have this global mind, we have this, and how do we, you know, take, you know, the, the uh, realities of the human mind, the individual human mind, and how do we wire up uh, a global mind that actually helps us and encourages us, as Jane was saying, like an environment that inclines us toward who we need to be and how we need to be in order to um, evolve and change and sustain ourselves. Right, if you could take that global hive mind and direct it towards, positive change, there can be no power, more powerful force. 
Exactly. I mean, you, and you therein said, lies the hope. <laughs> well, right. you know, you saw it in you know in the Arab Spring, which sure. obviously had its challenges, uh, and you know, didn't all go the way we wanted it to go. But you know, social media played in a really important role in mm-hmm. that, and I think, uh, and and also in societies where there isn't a free uh, press um, and where there is a lot of uh, government suppression, social yeah. media can be incredibly powerful and important. Yeah. When you, for, had you ever met Jane before this project? No, actually, um, I've, you know, I, it turns out on my flight to Tanzania that Jane was actually like right in front of me and uh, in the airline seat right in front of me. Oh, no way. <laughs> and, wow. Uh, and I had, uh, I had brought her a, a bottle of Johnny Walker, which I knew was her, her fave. So um, I, I get, you know, she was sitting there with her, her Mr. H, her, her little mm-hmm. monkey. <laughs> You know, that uh, she was given by uh, a man who was blind uh, that she carries around the world. And so she was there and I introduced myself and I said, you know, that I was coming, you know, and she was, you know, very gracious. And so she invited me around to uh, have dinner with her family the next day um, before we started our our interviews. And so uh, like I gave her the, I brought the bottle of Johnny Walker with me Mm -hmm. and she set it on the counter next to this, you know, like what looked like a two gallon um, pour over bottle of famous grouse whiskey that was half gone. And I was like, oh damn, this is gonna be intense. And so um, I was a bit intimidated. She shamed you and told you you should have bought the cheaper one. She did. She also told me I should have bought the cheaper one and uh, and donated the money. Uh, But, you know, so she, she, you know, is a big fan of whiskey. She, um, I think she, you know, it helps her voice because she's constantly talking all the time, but she also started the tradition of what she calls having a wee dram uh, with her, you know, whenever, wherever she was in the world, she, she and her mom would kind of toast uh, in the evening together, mm-hmm. uh, which was a very sweet tradition. Yeah. So. But obviously, you know, her reputation precedes her. You go into this with a certain sensibility about who she is and what she's gonna be like. Like yeah. were there was there anything about her that surprised you or that was different than what you had read or, you know, kind of consumed in all the media that there is about, you know, footage of her doing her thing? Well, there are a couple of things. I mean, I think that just seeing that in this 87 year old uh, woman was like a, a military general, you know, like that she's like, she's very sweet, very kind, but she's tough as nails. And she, you don't get to be Jane Goodall. You don't go into the, you know, the forest without some serious, you know, will and some serious, you know, kind of sense of yourself. Um, and so that was really powerful and amazing to see her power and her strength, you know, as gently as it is uh, deployed, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, you shake the Dalai Lama's hand and you feel like you're about to be thrown across the room. And then I, you know, in a, in, a, in a martial arts move, you know, like there's power and strength in that. And, you know, even in Archbishop Tutu's hand, which is, was, you know, feebled by um, polio, you know, you feel the strength and the power there. And I think that's really inspiring is just seeing, you know, somebody that doesn't, isn't fading away. You know, they're, if anything, they're, you know, they're, they're like Yoda or something, you know, they're right. becoming more powerful. Um, so that was really amazing. The other thing that um, I was really impressed with was that she has this kind of uh, seeker's willingness to ask the big questions, you know, like 
about life and its meaning. You know, a lot of scientists, they're kind of focused on their little expertise and their little area of study, or maybe not that little, but their specific mm -hmm. expertise. And they're not really willing to stray from that. She's willing to ask the biggest questions in life. And she's got this scientist's willingness to follow the facts wherever they may lead. Mm -hmm. One of the, the core kind of things about her is this idea of empathy in science, right? Mm -hmm. Which was really kind of radical when she was starting. Like you have to have empathy to be a good scientist, yeah. which was at odds with this notion that no empathy is at odds with the scientific method. Right, right. And having that like conviction about that as a young person is amazing. Like just in, she's naming all the, you know, the chimps and the apes and everyone's telling her don't do that. Right. And just her kind of, seeing things as clearly as she did and the conviction that she was on the right path like is is really remarkable and i also to your point of like having that you know that gravitas like she's always quoting winston churchill <laughs> so it's like <laughs> yeah. clearly you know yeah. and being a child of the war and all of that like that looms large like this you know what i take from that is like she knows that she's a leader and she's looking to the greatest leaders for you know her own inspiration about how best to lead and how to maintain conviction in the face of you know tremendous obstacles. Well, this kind of transitions us to the fourth reason of hope of the indomitable human spirit, mm -hmm. which right. you know obviously Churchill is one of her examples, and I think she is. I mean, that was one of my interest. The things I wanted to understand was you know her own indomitable human spirit and where does that come from and that resilience that you we spoke of before and that sense of you know kind of um, really not being stopped by you know the you know either the seeming facts or the biases and the prejudices of the time that would say a woman wasn't able to do what she did um you know that ability to really be indomitable i mean she really you, you can see that in her mm -hmm. um and i think that was really fascinating you know when we were having that conversation about how she really feels like there's something what she calls this indomitable human spirit that is both deep in our own individual self and our own capacity for um, endurance and you know survival and uh, meeting the challenges that we face, and that it's something bigger than us. You know that it's not just like as she said. It's also if we don't get there, others will pick up the baton and finish the race. Um, and that's this, you know, so there's this almost kind of transpersonal piece of it, which mm. was really inspiring of like, you know, it's not ours to finish the work. Um, we need to do our part, but if we don't get it done fully, there are others who will pick up the cause and make it happen. Mm. Yeah, that reminds me of this quote. Do you know who Scott Harrison is? He has this um, nonprofit called Charity Water. Oh yes, uh -huh. but he always says like, "Do not be afraid of work that has no end." Uh -huh. Like it's not about the destination; it's about devoting yourself to solving a problem, even yeah. with the understanding that in your lifetime, it will likely not be solved. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. that reminds me of a story that uh, Brian Stevenson told me for in one of the 
projects that we we worked on his book Just Mercy, and he uh, he talked about how when he met Rosa Parks and he was telling her that he was going to be working on mass incarceration reform and getting people off a of death row, and she's like, "Ooh, Brian, that's going to make you tired, tired, tired." <laughs> you know, like it's like, yeah, we can't. You know, mm-hmm. if we think about it as it's just, you know, that I think one of the things that you know our whole kind of educational system or a whole society makes it all about us and our own ego and our own success or failure and our own, what Archbishop Tutu calls self-regard. And what I learned from the Dalai Lama and Tutu about joy is that it's like, there's so much more joy when we go beyond that own, our own self-regard, when we go beyond our own sense of like fixating on ourselves. So like when I was in the room before the interviews with them thinking like, who the hell am I to do these interviews? You know, that's where, misery comes from, you know, that's where hopelessness <laughs> yeah. comes from. When I realized, you know, like I'm just there to do what needs to be done in that room so that what's meant to happen can happen. Um, then there's something much greater than us that settles into us and gives us this incredible strength and power that we're talking about with people like Jane or Brian Stevenson or Archbishop Tutu or any of them. But even in our own lives, it'll gives us this kind of superpower because we realize it's not about us. Yeah. You know, we're here to help something much greater, whether that's our kids and our family, or whether that's you know getting our society to the place that it needs to go uh, to be able to survive and thrive on this planet, um, or whether it's about developing you know, a bipartisan reality in our society that allows us to solve the big problems that we have. You know, when we are able to go beyond just the kind of like fixated on our own, either you know our own bank account or our own survival and our, or our own success. Um, there's that indomitable human spirit, I think comes in even more powerfully mm-hmm. because it becomes bigger. We it become bigger than up. us. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not my natural predisposition. It yeah. like, it requires work. You know, it's like, I'm caught up in my own bullshit. And yeah. I'm thinking about like, how does this affect me? And like, you know, where am I gonna have dinner or whatever? Yeah. Um, but I think that, example that you just shared is so powerful. Like when you're in that situation and you're just about to go have conversations with, you know, two of the biggest global icons in modern history, it's easy to get caught up in thinking about like, oh, I'm gonna screw this up or like, why am I here? Or like, this is all wrong. They've mm-hmm. made a mistake or like, you know. <laughs> when is Oprah of, or Anderson Cooper coming? I know, coming, it's like, you know? <laughs> why, can't you, why can't the default just be like, I'm here for a reason. Like, I don't know what led me to this point, but yeah. there are forces, invisible forces at work that have put me in this position. So just allow me to be a channel or a vessel for the greatest good. Like allow whatever happens now to be, you know, beyond like, you know, my personal self will. Yeah. And, you know, so that it can be, you know, the the greater than the sum of its parts, so to speak, right? Right. And when you and that and that requires kind of like a surrender and a humility, um, and a getting out of the way and a and a and a kind of sensibility of allowing that is not, you know, like natural, but can be cultivated. Um, and I just know in my own personal experience, you know, when I approach situations and I'm able to live in that space, that it's always better, you know? And it's yeah. also more gratifying because you're, you know, when you can kind of transcend your selfish personal desires 
and be in a space of service and giving, the result is always better and everything actually ends up working out a lot better anyway. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> yeah, I think that it's, when you say it's interesting, like it's not natural, I would say that it's not encouraged in our society to think that way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all about our grades and our career and our success. And look, somehow life evolved for this kind of separate locomotion and we, you know, are these individual people and we see the world through our own eyes and we are the, you know, the director and hero of our own movie all, you know, 24/7. That's, you know, how our consciousness works and we're not getting away from that either. Mm-hmm. But I think that when, you know, like there's this interesting thing you were talking about about the difference between hope and faith, you know, of like like, well, yes, a belief structure that says there's something greater going on here, that there is, you know, a greater purpose to life, I think can be hugely sustaining and, you know, or a belief in God for many people uh, can be really, really, really powerful. And hope is a little different than that. You know, like faith says, okay, I know these things to be true. Uh, Hope says like, I hope these things are true, you know, like, (laughs) you know, like I- self-defining. You know, it's a lot, it's humbler in some way. It's Uh not so confident. It's like, and, but I do think that, you know, to come back to the point about whether it's, you know, the the challenge of getting out of our own kind of self-absorption and our, like, I I am as self-absorbed as as anyone, you know? I mean, I've got the same, you know, like the same rumination, the same, you know, kind of self-doubts as everyone has. And we're not getting, again, getting rid of those things. I think it's like, can we step into a state I think some of these people who do devote, devote their lives to something greater than themselves develop it as a trait, you know. But can you step into this state where you're able to set aside, you know, this sense of isolation, fragmentation, alienation, separateness, and step in back into that tapestry of life that Jane mm-hmm. describes and feel a part of something greater and recognize that we have that capacity to be something greater. That is, I think when we tap into that indomitable human spirit, I think it, you know, the indomitable human spirit can happen, you know, in our own survival, you know, like, you know, it's every, you know, survival movie is, you know, an example of the indomitable human yeah. spirit and our will to survive, but it's a little different. I asked her, you know, it's a little different than the will to survive. It is something greater than just our own individual will to keep living. Yeah, because the will to survive might compel you to opt out of whatever that solution is out of self-preservation. So there's a selfless aspect to it, like the humans, the indomitable human spirit, like being called upon to perhaps even put yourself in danger for the greater good. Exactly, which people have been doing throughout yeah. all human history um, for for something greater than themselves. You know, it, it's interesting. You, we. Um, when we're talking about uh, the indomitable human spirit and kind of the our own life and the end of our life, you know, obviously Jane is 87, and you know, I we had this fascinating conversation about death, um, and I don't know if you if we should you know talk about no, that. No, let's but, do it. Um, but uh, you know, I think that that was even really interesting and hopeful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I asked her what her her next great uh, adventure was going to be, and she said death. 
And, you know, I, I had this image of, you know, Jane Goodall with, you know, the binoculars and the notepad, you know, heading out into the afterlife being like, okay, what are we gonna find here? Um, and, but it was fascinating to hear her views on the afterlife. Yeah, so expound upon that a little bit because it is it is interesting. I mean, she's obviously contemplating this deeply as yeah. she, you know, inches, you know, closer and closer to this inevitable end. But I think she has such a healthy and thoughtful uh, approach to it. You know, so not dissimilar from your father. Yeah, I mean, it it really is this kind of view that you know, when my dad was dying, he said, you know, I asked him how long he was going to stick around, and you know, I was, uh, and he said, you know, I'm just waiting here for landing instructions. Mm-hmm. You know, and so he it's unbelievable. You know, yeah. he had this view that there was some kind of consciousness after death. Um, I was really skeptical about that again. I mean, maybe it's just because we rebel against what our parents, you know, kind of view. And I think he actually came to that in his life. I don't know if that was always there, um, but, you know, Jane had this similar view and here we're going to, uh, you know, we're going from hope to faith, right? We're going to beliefs, mm-hmm. um, but this view that we go on into another uh, realm and that our consciousness goes on beyond the grave. Um, and that, you know, she had shares in the book, we share some of her incredible stories of when her husband died or uh, other stories that she's experienced or, or knows of that speak to that. And, you know, as, as my dad was dying, we were also working with a guy named Bruce Grayson who wrote a book called After, which is about, uh, he's the guy who, um, kind of the world's leading expert on near death experience, people who've, you know, kind of come close to death and kind of peeked over, but then come back. And even Alexander who wrote uh, Proof of Heaven went Mm -hmm. to try to get some understanding of what the hell had happened to him. You know, he went to Bruce Grayson and Bruce Grayson looked at his medical charts and, you know. Was uh, he the guy who was like a surgeon? So uh, even Alexander was the guy who was a surgeon. Yeah, yes. yeah, I know that story. You're right. And so mm-hmm. even Alexander went to Bruce Grayson and uh, to kind of figure out what had happened to him when when he had this near death experience. And um, so Bruce Grayson spent the last forty years developing the field of near death studies and you know looking at thousands of these cases of. Uh, and one of the things that was fascinating to have him say was that in all like all of those, you know, from looking at all those cases, there's an enormous amount of commonality and they're fundamentally based on that kind of, you know, so it's, it's not an experimental science, you know, they don't kill some people right. or, or have, put them yeah, in your death experience. It's inherently anecdotal. It's anecdotal, yeah. it's observational science, like astronomy is anecdotal, you know, is observational science, but from observing all those people's experience, what he's come to the conclusion is that there is consciousness after death, mm. that our consciousness goes on in some way. Um, and Jane clearly felt that way too. You know, I, um, you know, watching my dad die and uh, kind of being there, you know, fortunate enough to hold his hand as he was transitioning, uh, which many of us have not had a chance to do during COVID. Um, it was, you know, you start wondering, you know, like it's like being pushed up to the front of the row um, and you just start thinking about death and, and the meaning of life in a, in a whole mm-hmm. different way. So has that shifted your cynical New York mind? 
you know, I'd say, you know, like, you know, but the New York in me says it could be yeah. possible. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like there's there's a chance. And well, you can hope. You can right exactly. Yeah. There's a there's a possibility, and you know, look, none of us will know like until we get there. Um, and Jane's gonna probably get there before many of us. Um, and you know, maybe this will send some you know some uh, notes back from the field. Um, right. Yeah. But you know, we don't. We what I would say is I think that I've come to feel like, you know, whether it's our own curriculum that we're creating in our own life, or it is some greater sense of purpose or indomitable human spirit that goes beyond our own life and binds us together from generation to generation and, and across generation, that there is this human project that we are up to, that we are trying to figure out how to be a welcome species on this planet, how to survive and thrive in a way that um, has become uh, more urgent now than ever before. Um, and, you know, it's an incredibly exciting time to be alive. Um, and it's not unlike World War II in that we have got to become the greatest generations that have ever lived if we're gonna face these challenges. Sure. And on the subject of consciousness and, and faith, I mean, the way that I interpreted where Jane was coming from is that it's a choice. Like you can choose, she's like, look, either nothing happens or something happens. I'm gonna yeah. choose to believe that something happens. And then she tells these amazing stories of coincidences that have occurred throughout her life. Like this amazing story of coming up from the beach when the bombing raids were going on and her mom takes a unlikely route that she's never taken before and where they would typically walk, like a bomb explodes. Like, but her life is peppered with a lot of these stories. And I think yeah. if, we're, if we're all honest with ourselves, we can all, you know, find weird synchronous things that have happened in our lives and coincidences. And we have a choice, like, are those meaningful? Can we look at those and extract, you know, some wisdom or, or develop some level of awe and wonder about the mysteries of life? Or mm -hmm. are we just gonna say, well, that's just coincidence and, you know, kind of move on from there. And I think what's beautiful about Jane's example and her testimony and her lived experience is, that because she is so immersed in the interconnectedness and the tapestry of life, like so um, wedded to it, she's able to appreciate the mysteries that that provokes. Like there, like the, the humility that's required to understand, like we don't have all the answers and yeah. there's so much more going on. And we've only, be, she says like, we've only begun to even, you know, understand the first aspects of what is actually happening. And with that humility, I think there's, there's so much opportunity and space to have faith. Like the more, you know, the more crazy and mysterious it is. Right, exactly, and and I think that lots of the most visionary scientists, you know, we got to work with Stephen Hawking, who you know, at the end of his life, and you know, they're I think they're able to kind of peer, they they recognize that humility of mm -hmm. what we don't know and the mystery of it, and obviously Einstein was you know right. was very famously him, you know yeah. talks about that, and I think that um, you know one of the interesting distinctions is between hope and optimism. And so, you know, optimism 
is more often a kind of disposition or a philosophy, whereas hope, I think, is this thing that you actually have to engage in. You have to cultivate, you have to nurture it, you have to pursue it, you have to take action to encourage it, to have more of it. And um, Christiana Figueres, who we were talking about, who did the Paris Climate Treaty, has her version of kind of hope or what she calls stubborn optimism. Um, and I think, you know, what she explained was getting the Paris Climate Treaty done, you had to put optimism and hope into the process. You had to create the, poss- the imaginative possibility for people that this could be done. Right, so we're often sitting around there, you know, saying, you know, is my, you know, am I hopeful today? What, what, are, what do the facts look like? Mm-hmm. Am I feeling optimistic? Uh, you know, like, no, you know, it's going to rain. I'm not, I'm not hopeful. You know, like, yeah. but what they, I think she's saying to us, which is so powerful, and I think Jane is saying the same thing, which is actually no, it's you actually don't wait for the facts to be hopeful. You actually create the facts that then generate the hope. Mm. Yeah, that's the opposite of what you would think. Yeah. That's so interesting. Can you be a hopeful pessimist? I suppose, <laughs> you know, like, you know. <laughs> you, know, you know, I think, you know, what we, when we were researching optimism and pessimism and hope, you know, like there it seems like there's just a certain, you know, temperamentally, some people are more optimistic or more pessimistic. Mm-hmm. It's not clear how much of that is nature and how much of that is nurture, right? Um, some of that is trauma actually, is people who've, you know, kind of had their hopes dashed and, you know, are kind of, in defensive postures as a result of that. Some people, it's probably because that just their wiring that they're more biased towards that, you know, that negative bias and they're, you know, kind of more uh, oriented towards, you know, being vigilant. And that's probably necessary for our species too. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's the other thing when you look at it, when you see the diversity of human minds and speaking as a dyslexic here, you know, we need all of the minds, all their, with all of their diversity. And so some people, you know, probably have that more pessimistic disposition. But I think that's why this is not dispositional. This is about what, when Jane calls hope a, a fundamental human survival trait without which we perish, you know, it's this capacity like language, you don't have to develop you know, that language capacity. We have the ability mm-hmm. for language, but if you don't cultivate it, then you're never gonna learn language. Um, and that hope is this thing that we have that now we have some way of understanding you know, how we can cultivate it, how we can nurture it in one another, how we can sustain and support it in one another. Yeah, how does that translate into parenting, like we're now in a situation where we have this new generation of young people, we're both parents and this generation is inheriting, you know, this climate crisis. And with that, there's a distrust of the Gen Xers and the boomers and all of that. There's perhaps a little bit of anger, um, a little bit of despair, a little bit of self-righteousness and also kind of a mental health epidemic that's totally. precipitated by the pandemic and social media and everything else that's going on. So how do you instill hope in the next generation, you know, as, as, as a parent trying to help, you know, guide young people to maturity? Such a great question. Um, <clears throat> I think there is a mental health pandemic that's going on now. And I think young people are, you know, kind of disproportionately mm-hmm. affected by it. Um, I think that the rampant, 
you know, uh, kind of cases of depression and anxiety, both clinically and, you know, subclinically is a huge crisis in our world. I think one of the things to say is that I think this is the way that, you know, the crises in our world are expressing themselves through people and through yeah. our children, right? Like it's it's like, again, we like to see this as individualized and atomized and somehow, you know, like, like my child's mental health is somehow separate from the, the the state of the planet and the health of the planet or that because it feels okay I can I can you know give my child Prozac or deal with you know this in you know and yes you know obviously we need to deal with our kids uh, challenges um you know my kids have talked to me about whether they want to have kids or not you know and because they're so you know there's so much despair out there about the world that our children are inheriting. And I think that we really have, um, we have not done what we needed to do to be good ancestors for our, our kids and grandkids and great grandchildren. Um, I think that that said, I think, you know, coming back to this idea of hope as a social gift is like we can model hope in our own lives, you know, obviously are, as you know, as a parent, you know, what we do is way more important than what we say, you know? Like, yeah. So our own relationship to life and our own relationship to the future and how hopeful we are, I think is really significant. I think that supporting them and also, you know, that social support that helps them uh, in their times of crisis is huge and important. And like, you know, like the, the most important thing. And at the same time, one of the things that uh, the hardest lesson I have had as a parent is to realize that I cannot save my children from their suffering. Mm -hmm. And that it's actually not my job to take away their suffering. Um, their suffering is actually how they grow and develop what sculpts their soul. And what I can do is be in the suffering with them when requested, you know, and, but not try to take it away from yeah. them. And I think that that's the other piece of like resilience and, you know, of active hope is like, it's not about being a helicopter parent or a bulldozer parent or trying to solve all the problems or, or make the path easy. Coming back to that fundamental recognition that, you know, human life is filled with challenges. You look at, people like Tutu and the Dalai Lama and Jane. And you're like, wow, these lives are amazing because they're filled with adversity. Mm -hmm. You know, this wasn't, you know, like some unending yoga class that they were in that, you know, was <laughs> like, you know, blissful from start uh -huh. to finish, right? Um, and actually when you coming back to that phrase from my dad, you know, if we see this as a part of our curriculum, then even the anxiety and the and the despair and the depression that's part of the curriculum too that is part of the work and i mean i i think you know having grown up with a, a mom who suffered from depression i think i thought for a long time that my job was to kind of run away from sadness and you know run after joy and working on the book of joy with tutu and the dalai lama realized there ain't no joy without sadness mm -hmm. there's no you know there there's no joy without sorrow and that those two things are intricately connected and so helping our kids to experience the pain. I guess this is the other thing I would say um, is grief, you know, like recognizing you know, we're so grief phobic in this society, but 
we're experiencing enormous grief as a society and we're grief for all we've lost in the pandemic, uh, grief for what's happening in our world. And I mean, there's this amazing story that we tell in the book of hope about this woman and her, uh, who's working with the Inuit people and her uh, relationship to grief, which we can talk about. But I think that recognizing that we have to grieve our losses and that there's healing in that, you know, if we grieve, that's and are able to be there in that suffering and don't deny it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our culture isn't exactly permissive to that process. And yet that's the only path towards wholeness. Like you have to feel those feelings, you have to go through it. You can't short circuit it, you can't repress it. It's so hard, man, <laughs> that, that impulse of like wanting to make it okay for your kids. Yeah, like I oh just my wanna, God. I wanna alleviate the pain. I wanna swoop in and make it okay. And the sense that like this world that are, that they're inheriting, like this, this, you know, it's, it's a real heavy kind of vibe that they shoulder for themselves. And, you know, you feel like the culprit in that on some level. Well, you know, I was just down with Archbishop Tutu in South Africa and, you know, we were talking about when our kids suffer, it's like, and he said, it's like a double blow because you suffer because they're suffering and you feel responsible in some way you could have, you're responsible in some way for that. Yeah, that, that, you know, to the extent that you helped create it and your responsibility to alleviate it. Exactly. And, you know, I think that that is, you know that is the, the 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 noble curriculum of being a parent. You know is mm-hmm. is coming to terms with all of that and and recognizing you know again that we we can't. It's not our job to yeah. to to save them from that suffering. It is is really powerful. So you've had the privilege of of spending all this time with people like Jane and Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama. Like, how does that all kind of percolate? in your consciousness. Like, I feel like there's a similarity in what you do in what I do. And that like, I have the privilege of like seeking out people that I'm curious about and then forcing them to sit down and (laughs) talk to me, you know? And and you you do a version of that and you've created like this really interesting business that is very different from a typical literary agency. Like it's, it's almost like a, production company meets create creative agency on some level where my sense and correct me if I'm wrong is you you just seek out these really interesting people that you're really curious about and not only do you kind of enlist them as as clients and you agent their books but you are deeply immersed in these books like you function as editor as co-creator like it's not just like okay send me your book proposal it's like okay Come to the, you know, come and, you know, get an Airbnb in Santa Cruz and we're going to like <laughs> hang out for two months until we figure out what this book is. Right. Right. Well, so, yeah, in my um, agenting kind of creative life uh, at Idea Architects, so working with my colleagues, you know, uh, incredible teammates like Laura and, and Rachel, mm-hmm. what we do is we help, um, our, our mission is to help visionaries create a wiser, healthier, more just world. So we kind of seek out people who have the most compelling ideas and stories and then help them to develop those in a way that aligns that messenger with the message and the culture in a way that hopefully 
can help catalyze the next stage of our global evolutionary culture together. Um, that's that's the mission. It's a really mm-hmm. bold mission. Um, it's been amazing to get to do that with such extraordinary people, you know, uh, who are pushing the envelope of human possibility in some way. Uh, we do it primarily, you know, first often in books where we'll storyboard uh, mm-hmm. the project. So we'll um, actually go into a two-day process where we'll kind of storyboard and think about the the arc of the book. Um, we also are doing it in film and television uh, now and, uh, and podcast. So, you know, it's really about trying to create, you know, somebody, it's funny, somebody just wrote to me this week and said, you know, you've created like a new genre, it's called like a hope genre, Uh you know? So it's a, you know, a genre of media that is trying to give us, I I don't know if I'd say just hope as much as new possibilities uh, in our individual lives and in our, you know, kind of what we look for is life-changing and Mm world-changing. And some projects do both. Some are really focused on changing people's individuals. I mean, I'll, you know, I'll tell you, like, you know, we're talking about despair and, and, and our kids and stuff. So when I was, uh, you know, when I was seven, um, you know, when I was one of those kids, you know, I was pretty despairing too. And I was in that reality of growing up with a depressed mom and um, really isolated in, you know, an apartment in New York. And, um, you know, at one point I was like, I'm not so happy here. I want to check out. And I was one leg over the balcony of our, uh, of our apartment. Uh, and, you know, looking down, you know, at the kind of matchbox cars and the little uh, people who looked ant-like below and, you know, had to make a choice about whether I was gonna jump or not. And, you know, in retrospect, I, I, I think that I got the understanding that my life was a choice. And I think our work is really about, and my work uh, has been about helping give people more choice, giving people an opportunity to recognize that they have choices in their lives about how they live. They get to cultivate more hope or or not. Um, And we together have a choice of how we wanna live as a nation, as a world, as communities, and that we can create societies that are, that are, we, come from that amazing imagination, mm-hmm. that amazing superpower that we have um, that are wiser, healthier, and more just. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Uh, being mission oriented mm-hmm. and so intentional about the authors that you work with and the kind of books that they're putting out into the world. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. It's a, a huge privilege to get to work with uh, very well-known people, not yet well-known people, but people who are all trying to participate in that indomitable human spirit in some way. Yeah, cool. Well, I think that's a good place to put a pin in it for today. To be continued, what's what's the next book in the Global Icon series? The book of... <laughs> we, <laughs> you know, we, 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 don't, we don't know yet. We, you know, we often say we just do what the universe tells us to do. Uh-huh. So um, we'll be interested to hear what you're your listeners and viewers uh, tell us they want to hear yeah, next. Uh, yeah, like, sh- you know, shoot us a tweet or whatever with who you think the next book should be about. The next the global icon, yes. blank. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which icon. Exactly. Um, I always love talking to you, man. Thank oh, it's you. so fun. Um, this book is is a beautiful accomplishment. It's 
been really cool to see it out in the world and see Thank Jane you. out there making herself available. I mean, cover of Time Magazine, it's already like a huge success. And Thank you. everything you do has such a, you know, it has that, that intentionality behind it. But, you know, this, the, when you read it, you're like, this is somebody who's trying to do something good in the world. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's very honest and genuine in that regard. Thank you. Well, I, I if it. I can say on behalf of all of your listeners, uh, what you have created here on this podcast mm-hmm. and those conversations that you have with all those, uh, the extraordinary guests that you get to be mind melding with is it's a real privilege to get to, to eavesdrop and listen in. Um, and thank you for, for spreading all the goodness that you are. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Appreciate that. All right, and to be continued. Next time. Peace. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com where you can find the entire podcast archive as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, Voicing Change in the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube, and leave a review and or comment. Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated. And sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course, awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Kale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davey Greenberg, graphic and social media assets courtesy of Daniel Solis, Dan Drake, and AJ Akpodiete. Thank you, Georgia Whaley for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon. Peace, plants. Namaste.